Many thanks to Jeff Dancy. And handing over now to Naomi Ariata, who's going to talk to us about national courts in Latin America. Okay, hello. Uh, I want to talk... Okay? Yeah. I want to talk about state practice. And I want to talk about state practice in Latin American national courts. Uh, and to do that, here, the, here comes the uh, commercial, or not really commercial, but the, the, the plug. Much of what I'm going to say uh, is from a book which is now available uh, online as well as in print in Spanish and in English, uh, which is a digest of Latin American jurisprudence on uh, crimes under international law. What we uh, did, and uh, I'm not primarily responsible for this, but I feel like this was in part my baby, uh, was to take um, uh, cases from pretty much every country in Latin America that deal with this issue, the issues that arise around prosecuting uh, forced disappearances, torture, summary executions, uh, and looks at how the courts have dealt with a set of issues that are common to all of these cases. Uh, and, we'll get, and the book is organized by themes, so if you want to know how the courts have dealt with statutes of limitations, you can go to the section on statutes of limitations and see how five different courts have dealt with the issue. And so rather than do it country by country, we decided to do it uh, theme by theme so that it will be helpful, we hope, to people who are litigating these cases uh, to see the range of different arguments and the range of different ways uh, in which the courts have uh, dealt with a set of common issues. Uh, what I'd like to do in my talk is um, talk a little bit about some of those common issues uh, that come up over and over again uh, <coughs> excuse me, in the jurisprudence of national courts in Latin America, and then talk a little bit about some of the continuing obstacles, even in cases where the initial set of barriers has fallen away. Uh, so I wanted to start with um, your presentation yesterday, Daisy, talking about what the Brazilian courts had done, because it sounded very much to me like the arguments that were raised 10 years ago by courts in many other countries. So this is a political question. This is a question for the political branches. If there's going to be a change, it should be done by the legislature, not by the courts. This was a very common uh, way of dealing with challenges to amnesty laws. Uh, the question of non-retroactivity, this idea that, well, all the human rights treaties were signed subsequent to the events that we're worried about, and so it would be a violation of the principle of legality to now apply these human rights treaties to something that happened a long time before they were signed. This, again, was something that came up over and over and over again. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how, why that changed, but more how it changed. So the why, uh, I'm just going to do, you know, the sort of the, the fingers of the hand. Political change at the top, 
judicial reform, um, civil society pressure that continued even when people uh, thought that um, it wasn't going to continue, that people were going to give up, and they didn't give up. Um, uh, outside pressure, both from the inter-American system and from transnational prosecutions taking place in other places, things like the Pinochet case in Europe, but not only. Uh, and then uh, the use of openings and exceptions in national amnesty laws to push open some space. Right. So the, probably the most famous example is the Argentine one, where you have an Argentine amnesty that excludes uh, stealing of children and depriving them of their identity, and excludes stealing of goods. And so the first cases that the courts look at are cases that do not, by their terms, come within the amnesty. They're cases about stealing of children and stealing of goods. And the argument then becomes, uh, very famously in the child stealing case, how is it that we can prosecute these military people for stealing the identity of a child who, after all, is still alive? Huh? But we cannot, in the same case, in the same common nucleus of fact, prosecute the, 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 the crime against the parents who have been disappeared. Right. And so the absurdity of being able to prosecute one little piece of a case, but not the whole case, becomes apparent. Right. So in, in many cases, you can see this use of a wedge case, of a, an initial wedge issue, being what pushes forward the argument against amnesty. Now, pretty much throughout the Americas, I feel confident saying that in the Americas, there has been a clear abandonment by domestic courts of amnesty, even if it remains on the books. Uh, and let me talk a little bit about some of the salient issues. Uh, so Argentina is pretty much the only place that formally annulled the amnesty law. One of the questions that came up there, you will recall that in Argentina there's a two, three-step process. Right? The first thing that happens is the amnesty law is repealed. Right? Uh, and this was done by the legislature quite early on. Right? Uh, but the problem with repealing the amnesty law is whether or not it has retroactive effect. In other words, does it apply only to crimes that are committed going forward, or does it apply to crimes that co were committed earlier? And the problem with repeal that comes up is that uh, the argument is made that, well, if you have an earlier law and a later law, there is a rule of penal law, domestic penal law, that exists pretty much everywhere that says that the defendant gets the benefit of the most favorable law. Right? Uh, and so that if you have a repeal, then the question is, well, do you apply the pre-repeal law or the post-repeal law? Well, you have to apply the law that is most favorable to the defendant. And so, in effect, repealing the amnesty law does absolutely no good. Right? Now, what the courts then do is they say, well, we're not talking about repeal, we're talking about annulment. Right? 
The difference being that annulment means it was never a legal law in the first place, and so there is no more favorable law that can be applied by the defendant. Right? So that's one set of problems that comes up early on in Argentina. So in Argentina, the next step is to move from repeal to annulment. Right? And the annulment happens in two ways. It happens first legislatively and then is conferred, well, it happens first uh, on the trial court level with the courts, um, with, with uh, the, 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 the uh, district court case. Uh, as that case is going up through the appeals process, the legislature steps in, and then finally you have the Supreme Court decision uh, in 2005. Um, now, uh, one thing that makes Argentina different from any, everywhere else is that Argentina, uh, in its constitutional reform, gave a uh, specific status to human rights treaties in Article 75, uh, which makes the human rights treaty su uh, on the, superior to any other domestic law, right? and possibly even superior to uh, uh, contrary constitutional provisions. Right? And so this has made it easier uh, for the courts to uh, uh, to find that the international law obligations of Argentina in essence override or trump any other domestic law that may be contrary, for instance, an amnesty law. Right. Um, so in that sense, Argentina is a little bit sui generis. It's a little different from any place else. Um, most other places, the amnesty law may remain on the books, but it has either been interpreted not to cover crimes against humanity or uh, it's been interpreted um, uh, not to cover uh, the crimes at issue in some other way. Um, in Chile, for example, where the amnesty law remains on the books, right, but it is in effect not being applied by the court, uh, there are four different arguments that are used. Uh, one, two of them are international law arguments and two of them are domestic law arguments. So the international law argument, one is common article three of the Geneva Conventions. Now, why common article three? Because that gets you out from under the problem of having to reach back, right? The Geneva Conventions were signed and ratified by Chile in the 1950s. There's no question they were in force when the crimes were committed. But what's the problem with common article three? Well, common article three, by its terms, does not require prosecution. The part of the Geneva Conventions that requires prosecution technically only applies to international armed conflicts. Uh, so what do the Chilean courts do with this? Frankly, they ignore it. <laughs> they just do not go there. Um, they don't take into account this technical problem at all. The other problem with dealing with war is a question that was raised about Brazil, which is many people in Chile said there was no war in Chile. Right? What there was was a repressive government that went after unarmed civilians. Right? There were crimes against humanity, but there was no war. So how are we applying a convention that deals with war crimes? The answer that the Chilean courts gave was it doesn't matter if there was a war or if there wasn't, the military says there was a war, right? 
we don't need to decide whether they were right or not. Right? We just need to say, if they are going to say that there was a war for purposes of all of these military degrees, it decrees, then they have to live with that when it comes to prosecuting. Right? Um, so that's the argument around the use of common article three. Uh, the other international law theory that the courts use is this um, sorry, is based on the inter-American jurisprudence. Uh, and is based on Article 8 and 25 of the American Convention. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time on that. Um, basically, what they say is that uh, no amnesty applies because it would be incompatible with the human rights obligations of the state. Um, now, this actually, I will spend a little time on this. Actually, the problem that this raises is another problem that was raised yesterday which is what do you do with this retrospectivity problem then? These conventions were all passed in the 1970s and 80s. For the most part, the crimes took place before then. Right? So how do you apply a convention that is later than the events at issue? And the courts have grappled with this. And what they have said, by and large, let me see if I can summarize this. Uh, step number one. Uh, these are crimes against humanity because they meet the definition of crimes against humanity. Widespread systematic attack against the civilian population. Number two, crimes against humanity are prohibited in customary international law and have been at least since Nuremberg. Right? Okay, so that's step number two. But then you have the problem that uh, you raised and that the Brazilian court raises, which it says, well, customary international law is all well and good, but it's not penal law. Right? Um, you know, we need the certainty and the specificity of the penal law because otherwise this violates due process norms. Okay, so then what? So then they say customary international law is not replacing the domestic penal law. The pe people who are being tried are being tried for crimes which have long existed in domestic law. Murder, assault, kidnapping. <laughs> Right? Yeah. These have always been crimes. All we're doing is we're saying that under these specific circumstances, these domestic crimes take on the characteristics of an international crime such that amnesties and statutes of limitations do not apply. Right? But the underlying penal figure is that of the domestic law. Right. So it's this very interesting sort of twist right, where you're not applying the international law as penal law. You're applying it to give this um, covering to the penal law right, of the state. All right. Um, two other theories, uh, both of them domestic law theories. One is you have to get to the end of the line before you can apply an amnesty law. In other words, how can you apply an amnesty until you know who you're applying it to, for what crimes, and whether these people are actually responsible for these crimes. So you have to have an investigation and a trial, right? and only after the investigation and the trial can you decide whether the amnesty law applies at all. That's the other theory that's, uh, that's been used in, in Chile quite a bit. Uh, and then the specific uh, nature of forced disappearances as continuing crimes, right? 
which means that you don't know when they actually were consummated. If you don't know when the crime was actually consummated, you don't know if it was consummated within the amnesty period, so you really can't apply the amnesty. Similarly, you can't apply a statute of limitations because you don't know when the statute of limitations should begin to run, because you don't know when the death actually occurred. Right? Uh, and so that's the other way that the courts go around this question of uh, amnesty and statute of limitations. All right, uh, so there's lots more to say about this. There are, there's interesting jurisprudence in Colombia. There's even interesting jurisprudence in Central America, in El Salvador and Guatemala, uh, where the courts say it's up to the prosecutor. Uh, we are not gonna stand in the way, but we need the prosecutor to bring the cases. The problem is the prosecutor doesn't bring the cases. Now, five minutes. So we've won, right? Right? <laughs> you know, everywhere else we now have domestic courts that say no amnesty law can stand in the way of prosecution. Well, not quite. So what's ended up happening is that there are a whole series of other obstacles to prosecution that are now coming to the fore. Uh, let me just list some of them. I mentioned the statute of limitations. That has turned out to be more problematic than amnesty. Uh, it has dealt, been dealt with much the same way, um, but I think with less of a grounding. I mean, the problem is once you leave the convention on the non-applicability of statute of limitations to one side, because the state is not a party, then you have to find a customary norm of non-applicability of statutes of limitations, for the most part, the courts simply pull it out of the inter-American jurisprudence. I'm not sure the in, where the inter-American jurisprudence exactly pulls it out of. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a little bit problematic, but there it is. Um, beyond that, there are, let's see, three different sets of issues that I want to just point to. One is, even if you get to the point of being able to indict, you still have to prove the case. This is not as easy as you might think. These cases are old. The witnesses are old. Uh, for the most part, they are in a, often unavailable. Right? And so who you have evidence to try is not necessarily the people you'd most like to try. Right? And so there ends up being a certain arbitrariness to which cases go forward based simply on where you have the evidence and where you don't. Right? Uh, and in many of these cases, the most atrocious crimes and the most responsible people cannot be convicted because the evidence is not there. Right? So that's problem number one. Uh, and of course, we like... Um, you know, we, we, due process is a good thing. Right? You know, we want the evidence to be there, right? Um, but how do the courts deal with uh, inferences, for instance? How do they deal with circumstantial evidence? How do they deal with moving from the direct perpetrator to the indirect perpetrators? In this sense, the Latin American jurisprudence is all over the place. So you have a great decision in Fujimori, right, on how to do this. But then you have the same Peruvian courts saying we can't use anything but direct evidence to go after person to, to go after uh, uh, defendants. Right? 
We can't use any inferences at all. So, very uneven treatment. Um, Amparo, another good, Amparo or Tutela, every Latin American country has some version of uh, you get to protect your constitutional rights against misuse by the government. This is a good thing, right? We like Amparo, right, as human rights people. But, okay, but the problem is it has been misused, right? And it has been misused to delay cases over and over and over again, right? And the courts have not stopped it. Um, next, uh, practical uh, problems of prosecutors not wanting to bring the cases forward, either because they're afraid or because they're corrupt or because they have better things to do. They're overwhelmed with current crime, right? Uh, and lastly, sentencing. Sentencing, even when you get a conviction, has turned out to be quite a problem. In two senses, and here I'll stop, one is where do people spend their time once they've been sentenced? Do they spend it in a luxury jail with their own private TV and their own private uh, you know, room service? Right? Or do they spend it in jail with all the common criminals? Right? Second, what do we do where the penal law separately and totally separate from amnesty right, requires that sentences be reduced or mitigated because of the amount of time that is passed? This is what's happening in Chile where you have sentences uh, for crimes against humanity which the lower courts come up with 15 to 20 year sentences the Supreme Court is then applying a set of mitigating factors to reduce the sentence to five years. And under Chilean law, when you have a five-year or less sentence, it can be served on parole. And so you have people who have been convicted right, of killing 25, 30, 40 people who are walking around the streets on parole, having been duly sentenced. So my conclusion, reinterpreting the amnesty law is a good idea, but it is not sufficient. Thank you.